0: Good to be with you. It's officially uh, flannel season. Mornings are a little chilly. Uh, If you're visiting, really glad that you're here. We are in the Book of Exodus. That's why that is up there, Um, Chapter One. We we started last week and uh, we didn't get very far. So um, if uh, if if you have a Bible, Exodus, second book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have them at our Connect Desk as gifts uh, f- for free, for you if you don't have one and you want one, stop by on your way out and uh, and you can go home with a Bible today. Um, We started last week, we only made it six verses in, we're gonna finish chapter one today, Um, but what we looked at is how there's so many threads that are started in the book of Genesis that find their way into Exodus, and if we don't know what those are, we lose a lot of the significance of the things that are happening in Exodus, as God is sort of weaving this whole one big story together. Of particular significance in Genesis are the promises that God makes to a man named Abram, who he renames Abraham, um, and one of those promises that uh, God is going to take his lineage and make them into a great nation. And eventually, through that lineage would come a blessing that would reach every family across the face of the earth. And ultimately, that one is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus who is descended from Abraham and Jesus who does reverse the, the the curse of Genesis 3 when sin enters the world. We looked at all that last week, but that's sort of the, the 30,000 foot view of the promises that God's making to Abraham. Um, the, the more... Um, the more immediate, sort of on-the-ground, significant thing for us in Exodus is the promise God makes in Genesis 15, where he says this, Then the Lord said to Abraham, uh, to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So, so that's where we're at in Exodus, that's what God is doing. Uh, Abraham's uh, great-grandchildren, they enter Egypt at the end of Genesis, and, and we see it picking up in Exodus 1, uh, 70 people, that's the size of their family, and they grow to be this, this great nation. However, it's important to notice how, uh, and, and we see it here, God's plan and your plan don't always line up. Right? And sometimes that misalignment happens because we only listen to some of what God says and not all of what God says. Does that make sense? Like, what do you think it's going to be like for Israel if they listen to the part where God promises you're going to be a great nation and from you is going to become, uh, become a blessing that reaches the, the face of the earth? Uh, but they miss the part about, hey, like you're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Um, if they miss that part of what God says, they're going to be immensely frustrated and, and maybe bitter and resentful and in all these awful things, right? Uh, or if they're in the experience of being enslaved and they, they see that part of it, but they miss the part where God says, hey, after 400 years, I'm gonna judge the nation that you serve and, and I'm gonna bring you out with great possessions. Um, Unmet expectations is, is maybe the greatest source of frustration in your life, right? Unmet expectations. Um, unless, oddly enough, if you're like really pessimistic person, unmet expectations are great. Um, if you're, so I'm a Giants fan, New York Giants, and if, if you're one of us, or if you know our experience, uh, we've become pretty pessimistic over recent years. And last week when the Giants won, it felt like we won the Super Bowl. Like, it was the best. Because like expectations are always at the bottom. And then there's this amazing unmet expectation. The problem with that is now, like, even though I'm trying to resist it, like, they're a little bit raised. And so when we don't play well, it's just going to plummet again and be awful. Uh, if, if you're expecting that your life is going to go a certain way, And you think it's gonna go that way because you're a good person or you're a good Christian and you go to church and you pray or you have good karma, whatever it is that you think, and and you listen to some of the things that God says about how he is with you and for you and will bless you and all those things. Um, When life doesn't go the way that you hope it will, that's gonna be very difficult for you to deal with. That's gonna be very difficult for your faith even to survive through that. Um, That's why we said last week, one of the things we talked about, it's important to know what God's promises are. It's equally important to know what they're not so that you're not assuming that God is guaranteeing you certain things that he's actually not promising. Um, so, so we don't get this false, expect- uh, false expectation only listening to part of what God says and not listening to parts where he says, uh, here's what it means to follow me. Here's the sacrifice that it takes to follow me. Here's the troubles that you're going to face in this life. Even though I'm there with you in them, you have to listen to every, every part of what God says. Um, what we're going to do this morning, we're going to continue in Exodus 1. We're going to read all the way through the end. This is a dark chapter it, it covers uh, very uh, a very dark experience, um, and it's it's kind of odd reading these things in the Bible because it doesn't take that long to read through it. And so, if you were just at home reading Exodus on your own, it could be very easy for you to read through chapter one, keep going, and get to Moses and kind of move on to the further you know parts of the story and almost glance over what's happening here and not really deal with or think deeply about the implications of what's happening, but, but we're going to pause on this today. Um, we're we're going we're gonna to deal with it. We're going to look at it and, and see what God's doing in it. Um, so anyways, Exodus 1, starting in verse 8. We're going to read through all of it and then uh, kind of go back in over pieces. So chapter 1, verse 8 says this, Now there arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Right. That should make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because it's horrible, isn't it? Th- this is the pattern for how genocide happens. There's, there's a gradual series of steps that take place over kind of a long period of time. Like we read it all in one. Uh, but this is describing a process that takes years and years and even generations. And we can see this play out, not just here in Exodus with the, the Israelites. We, we could see this happen in Nazi Germany. Y- you see the same thing happen in the Soviet Union in their genocide, or the uh, the Ottomans in uh, the Armenian genocide. Uh, this is a process by which you take a, a minority part of the population, and you... Um, you label them as subhuman, you kind of change your population's thinking about them, uh, that they're the source of every problem, they're the greatest threat, all the things that are wrong in your life and in this country are because of them, and it's gradually changing the heart and mind of the people about them to the point that ultimately the majority population approves of and even works toward their destruction. And so here's how that pattern happens with, Uh, in Egypt with the Israelites. The first step, and it's not even something that that actively happens, this is just describing something that sort of passively comes about. In verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The, The first step in this process is to lose any sense of gratitude or appreciation for the accomplishments or the work of the people that you're about to oppress. Uh, you just kind of ignore it, sweep it under the rug, and and pretend that it's, it's not even there. We talked about Joseph a little bit last week. We didn't get deeply into his story, but essentially he goes from being a prisoner in Egypt, uh, rising to second in command, uh, second only to Pharaoh, and it's only because of his wisdom and his leadership abilities that Egypt not only survives through a severe famine of seven years, But they grow fabulously wealthy and powerful because all the surrounding nations have to go to Egypt to buy their food for seven years. And so because of this man, Joseph, Egypt grows incredibly powerful and and wealthy. And the Pharaoh at that time, he deeply appreciates Joseph. Joseph. And he shows deep respect towards his family. He invites them into Egypt. He says, Yes, come here, live here, take this land. Uh, and, and that's how it starts. But over time, and as the generations change, there's a new king in Egypt who doesn't know that or doesn't attribute much significance to it. And, uh, and, and, he starts to deal with this people who are here in his land in uh, the, the second step in uh, a clever sort of political move that comes from a place of his own fear. And so verse nine and 10, uh, and, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land here, Pharaoh is starting to create the narrative about them. He's he's planting the seed in the minds and the hearts of his people, the greatest threat to us, the greatest threat to you as this people right over here. They're too big. We won't be able to manage them. We won't be able to control them and, and say, you know, the worst happens. They could be our destruction. And, by the way, we rely on the work that they're doing for us, and we don't even want them to escape the lands. We want to keep them here. And, and so this, this place of fear and insecurity in the mind and the heart of Pharaoh, where he sees this group that he thinks, I might not be able to control them. What happens if they don't listen to me? Rather than doing, like, what you should do, which is treat them well so that they like you and they want to, you know, do do well in your land and support you. Uh, this is like a... I know it's totally, totally different, but like in bad workplaces, like this kind of pattern emerges, like leaders who are insecure, and they kind of like treat their workers poorly, and kind of suppress them, and squish them down, and then like are shocked when they leave. <laughs> like there's not really a big surprise here. Um, you know, thankfully, there are laws in place that prevent you know, workplace violence, like, uh, like Pharaoh inflicts on the Israelites. Um, By the way, this is the same move that politicians, like, they never stop doing this. It's incredibly effective, and we've known for a long time, even if you listen to, like, political analysts, they'll just, like, straight up say, uh, people don't vote for the things they want. They vote against the things they fear. And so the whole political playbook is to make you afraid. And that's the thing that's going to motivate you more than anything else to vote in the way that they want and let them acquire more power. And like my advice to you, if you're the kind of person who is, has deep anxiety over political issues, um, my advice to you is to like go outside for a bit, like don't take your phone, don't watch the news, and just like talk to people face to face and just be outside you're going to be so much happier and have so much less fear. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be ignorant of political issues, like they are important, but you should at least be aware that like their playbook they've admitted to is they want you to be afraid. They want to amplify your fears about things so that they can get what they want from you. And so just be aware, like, you don't have to let them amplify it. You can be informed without uh, being overwhelmed by fear. Um, anyways, that's the move that, that Pharaoh chooses. He's planting fear towards Israel in the heart of his own people. After some time of doing that, uh, successfully identifying them as a threat, step three starts to actually... Oppress them. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Uh, one quick misconception to, to clear up here. Exodus tells us the Israelites build these store cities, Pithom and Ramses. These are like granaries in these cities and, and they're creating the bricks to make these places. Exodus does not say that the Israelites build the pyramids. Uh, it, it doesn't say it anywhere there and it's very unlikely that the pyramids were made by a slave labor force. They weren't bricks that were created, they were stones that were precisely cut. So just like in FYI, th- it's unlikely that slaves made the pyramids. It doesn't mean that they weren't slaves and they weren't put to forced labor. They were. They're brutally oppressed. This is legal sanctioned violence against a group of people. There are a few things that are more dehumanizing and demoralizing than legal sanctioned violence against a group of people because like when it's happening to you, there's, there's nowhere you can go like there's no one you can call there's there's no nothing you can appeal to for justice it makes you just so powerless and helpless and it just you have to let it happen to you and if you fight back it becomes even worse Right, you read about that in the experience of, of slaves in the American South, and, and even in the Jim Crow era, uh, era in the South, in the Civil Rights Movement, we see kind of elements of this, where, uh, where legal institutions are inflicting violence upon a group of people and, and their struggle against that. Um, it's in this step that the oppressor is attempting to crush the spirit of the people who they're oppressing. Uh, from here, we see Pharaoh move to uh, trying to manipulate things behind the scenes a little bit. So look at this, verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Um, these two are probably representative of the midwives. It's not, there's only two for the whole kind of nation. But Pharaoh's taking a pretty drastic step here. Uh, beyond treating people violently in their forced labor, w- which is awful, the way he wants to manage the, the population anxieties over this nation Israel is by killing the sons who are born. Innocent babies and and he probably like the reason this starts off behind the scenes and he's passing this instruction to the midwives um, At a certain point in this process it's probably very difficult still for the Egyptians to approve of something like this because it's so barbaric right his plan is essentially to pass these deaths off as as complications in childbirth, or, or maybe he'd say like this is um, this is a curse from the gods on these people, and look at what's happening to them. And even the gods say that they're they're awful, terrible people, like something like that. But again, this, this is taking place over a period of time, and. Especially during the beginning of this process, because the people are living side by side, you have to imagine that there are relationships that exist between Israel and Egypt that are friendly and even warm and good relationships. And it takes time for that to break down and get to a point where you'd actually be okay with killing the the innocent infant sons that are born to them. His plan is to, to kill these sons. Uh, I mean, probably they're the biggest threat to him. They're the ones who could grow up to have the strength to be soldiers to fight against him. And, and if there are no sons for them, they'd kind of marry into or become uh, servants of the Egyptians. And then you know, over a period of time, this would erase the Israelite identity and they'd be integrated into Egypt and, and he would solve the problem that way. Um, this, this is so evil. This is such a devaluing of human life. And it's such a departure from Genesis 1. I think it's on purpose that we, we see such a fall into depravity here in Exodus 1 from where it starts in Genesis 1 where God creates everything. He creates human beings and he says they're created in my image. Like nothing else in all of creation is made in the image of God. Not even the angels are made in the image of God. The, the reason that your life has infinite dignity, worth, and value is it's not because of what you have, and it's not because of what you do or, or what you're capable of. It's simply because of what you are. You are a human being made in the image and likeness of God. Whether you are a a man or a woman or rich or poor or or healthy or sick or injured or you're smart or you're not that smart, born or unborn, it, it doesn't matter. Your life has infinite dignity, worth, and value because you're a human being made in the image of God. That doctrine, the imago Dei, the image of God, that is the root for the modern belief and concept of human rights. So so the whole idea of human rights that is is pretty embedded in our culture now and and many people who don't believe in God and don't believe anything about the Bible, uh, they believe that human beings have inherent rights. But the root for that belief goes all the way back to God and to the Bible. That's the source of it. It's where it came from. And without that root, there's not a self-evident reason for, for why that's actually the case, right? And the world where that belief has not taken root and sort of shaped the people, uh, it's not self-evident that everyone has human rights and deserves certain things. It's, it's you know, the the powerful rule over the weak take what you want no no one you don't owe anything to anyone that's sort of the prevailing wisdom apart from this doctrine uh, anyways over time i mean this it, it takes place in the egyptian society and culture and people and over time like the plan works uh, eventually the Egyptians have enough support for his ideas that he issues a decree. He issues a command. This becomes the law. Verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Right? He makes this the, the law of the land. It makes the Israelites so subhuman in the eyes of the Egyptians that they would take an innocent Hebrew child and throw them into the Nile. And you see it a few times in the text. You see kind of this growing sentiment from the Egyptians towards the Israelites. They they began to be in dread of them. Uh, they begin to hate them. They make them work harder. They oppress them more. They, they develop such a hatred for the Hebrews that they, they publicly approve of, and even some participate in uh, killing their their. Innocent infant sons. This is dark. I've I've had thoughts about this ever since uh, my my own daughter was born. So my daughter's two years old, and just kind of seeing her from from birth and seeing like how small and innocent she is, and just like how precious her life is. And so like seeing her and having that experience of being with her, and then at the same time hearing sometimes stories in the news about horrible, evil things that people do to children and even to infants. And it's hard to understand how that could even happen. Like, how anyone could ever get to a place where they, they would actually do some of these things. And I think part of it, like, part of our our whole, like, kind of collective view towards Babies is because God is is so smart. He made us really weak to cute things, you know. So like we're just so quick to get over any anger and just kind of forgive them, and they get way more grace than than maybe they otherwise would. Like the number of times my daughter has punched me in the face, or like scratched at my eyes, or just like this thing. She she like beats up on her cat, and like we don't know why we can't get her to stop. And uh, just like last week, she took a marker and she like scribbled all over our comforter and uh, just things like that. Like, things that'll make you angry. But then she looks at you with these big eyes and she hugs you and you're like, I can't be mad. To think that for, like, putting yourself in the place and the experience of the Hebrews. To think that someone could legally come up to them, snatch away their child, and throw them into a river and and put them to death? And it's all legal, and you're, you're powerless. You have no avenues to resist that. How could it be any darker for them? And yet... We do see something at work, some of the power of God at work in this, in in the middle of all this darkness. In verse 12, this should stand out to us. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. It's like, on the one hand, Pharaoh's plan is kind of working, you know? Like, he succeeds in oppressing them, he succeeds in creating this awful experience for them, and creating a a public sort of uh, sentiment towards the Israelites, where where the people, they hate them, they fear them, they, they think they're the biggest threat and the biggest problem. He's successful in that, but on the other hand, his plan backfires spectacularly, because it only makes them grow faster and bigger. This is what Proverbs tells us. Proverbs 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Like Pharaoh has all these plans that, that he wants to do, but it's God's plan that's ultimately going to be accomplished in the end. And God is even going to integrate and use the things that Pharaoh is doing to accomplish his own purposes in the end god is the sovereign lord and creator of the universe he's the author of life he has a plan for the redemption of all things through jesus christ his son you can either help god accomplish his plan by by submitting to him by giving your life to him by saying i want to live my life for your glory and your purposes god or you can ignore his plan or try to oppose it and he's going to use you in his plan anyways. The only difference is is you're not going to be with him, you're going to be against him and at the time when he judges the earth and makes all things new, you're not going to be there with him. Pharaoh's plan does not accomplish the end that he intends it to. But again, that's not something we can just sort of like take the victory here and ignore the experience of the people, of God's people, and what they're suffering. It's still incredibly dark. They're still suffering cruelty. People are being treated violently. Babies are being killed legally. But it is to point out, again, the point that we brought up last week that... uh, Nothing can destroy the work of God. Nothing can destroy the work that he's doing in his people, even the most horrific opposition to it. Uh, Having having worked through Exodus 1 now, looking back into it, there are a few things that we can learn from it, Uh, and and some of the things that we learn from it that just give us so much confidence in God. Uh, Three things that I want to point out. God is always working, God uses the weak, and the fear of the Lord will make you strong. Three lessons that fall out of Exodus 1. Uh, God is always working, God uses the weak, and the fear of the Lord will make you strong first. God is always working. This this is easy to forget, and it's easy to choose not to believe it when Uh, Like you can imagine how easy it is for the Israelites in 400 years and and kind of facing this intensifying and growing oppression against them and, and some of the ones who directly experience this. You can imagine how easy it is for them to either forget that God is always at work or even to choose not to believe it because they don't see it happening. Uh, 400 years they're there. We don't know exactly when that process starts. In, in Joseph's generation, they're treated pretty well, but it's, it's a process over time. At least at the point that Moses is born, this has been happening for decades of a, of a growing oppression and persecution against them. Even in the midst of all of that, God is still working just, just in ways that aren't immediately obvious and known to his people especially while they're sitting there in the midst of their suffering. Listen, you and I, we are limited in ways that God is not limited. Like, our perspective and understanding of, of the world around us, we're limited in the view that we have in a way that God is not. God is unlimited. He, he perceives, knows, and understands everything. And just because you and I can't think of a good reason for why something is allowed to happen does not mean that a good reason does not exist. Does that make sense? Uh, Just because you and I can't think of a good reason for why would a good and loving God allow this to happen, especially in his people, just because we can't see that reason does not mean that a good reason does not exist. I think I used this illustration once, but when, when my daughter was probably around a year old. Um, she wasn't walking yet. She was crawling, and she could, like, pull herself up to stand. Uh, one morning, I was with her, and it was kind of an early morning, and I had work later, and, and my mother-in-law was going to come over and start watching her. And so I walk out into our family room, our living room, we only have one. I don't know what the difference is between those, but the one with the couch. And, uh, and so like, I get out there, and I'm, I'm so tired, and I see on the couch that there's a dog treat there. Uh, it's like sweet potato dog treat thing, and I, there's no good reason for this to be on the couch. So I take it, and I threw it on the floor. And then, because I was so tired, I was so early, I lay down on the couch, and I rested my eyes. And I didn't sleep, not irresponsible that much, uh, but I did rest my eyes, and just kind of let Amelia start exploring. And um, a few minutes later, I hear her, and I open my eyes, and she's standing there next to me, kind of eye level, and her face is all orange. And I'm like, what is that? And then I see she has the dog treat in her hand. And then I realized there was a really good reason why the dog treat was on the couch. It was so that she wouldn't start eating it. And uh, so, yes, I, I let her eat a dog treat by accident. Um, just because we don't see a good reason does not mean a good reason does not exist. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite preacher ever, you should read everything he ever wrote. It would be great for you, but he wrote a lot. Um, he has this quote where, I, I hope this would be helpful for you. He says, God is too good to be unkind, and He is too wise to be mistaken, and when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart when we can't trace this and we can't understand the things that God is doing in that moment, we can still trust that his heart is good. And the way that we can always do that, the way we can always get there is by looking back at the cross. When when you see Jesus, the Son of God, dying on the cross for your sin, that is the objective evidence that God is for you and he's not against you. When you see his resurrection, that is the evidence that he does have a plan even through the worst possible things to bring resurrection and life and redemption. Jesus, he knows suffering, he knows loss, and he knows you and he loves you and he has an eternal plan of redemption for you. It was hard for the Israelites to see that God is working, but he had already promised to Abram, uh, 400 years, you'll be here and you'll, you will suffer, but I'm going to judge the, the nation that oppresses you and bring you out with great possessions. Pharaoh's hard at work to, to squash the people of God and destroy the work of God in them, but God is making them grow more and more He's always at work. He always cares for people. He always cares for his people. Um, We don't always see it. In fact, a lot of the time, God's care for his people is, is a hidden kind of care that we don't get to understand, sometimes even until years later. And so just speaking from, from my own experience, and, and some of you, I'm sure, will have similar things. When I was 12, my, I lost my father to cancer. Um, it, and then that kind of kicked off a, a series of very kind of painful years and, and difficult things that happened. It took nine years before I could look back and see really any good in what happened then in the following years. Uh, but looking back now, I see that's the thing more than anything else that put me on a path where I could see how good and loving and beautiful Jesus is and being able to see that, have my heart changed by Jesus and become this this new person because of him, because of his love for me and his work for me in the gospel. And that is the thing that led to me meeting my wife and now having my daughter and being here in this church. And I can look back with gratitude knowing that my dad knew Jesus and and loved Jesus. We don't always get to see the work that God's doing, how it is that he really is caring for us. Sometimes it takes years before you'll get to see it. Um, and if you are a per- i don't want to be dismissive so if you are a person who's maybe you're in a place where this is something that you struggle with you struggle with understanding how god could allow the things uh, that happen to you to happen if you're kind of struggling where how is it that god loves me how is it that he cares for me let me say first of all doubt is fine okay like it's it's completely fine if you have honest sincere genuine doubt um you know our goal as a church is not to like kind of crush that and crush any questions and just believe what we tell you to believe like, I, I hope that you find this church to be a safe place to, to ask those questions and to wrestle through those things and and I hope that in your process of that you find people in this church who will care about you and pray with you and, and maybe help you uh, as you're you're exploring and, and wrestling through your doubt um, Second of all, if I if that is you, and if I could just encourage you for a minute uh, to give you a little bit of direction uh, for for what you should be exploring, if you do want to make sense of what you've experienced, I would encourage you to explore in the direction of Jesus Himself. Look to Jesus. Look to His words and His work and His life and His promises. Look, look to what Jesus says about, um, about how much he loves you and, and the work, the mission that he's on, what it's supposed to do, how that mission uh, takes shape, how it leads to the, the gospel, his death on the cross, what that death accomplishes and what his plan is for eternity. Eternity. I believe it's in the life, and the work, and the words of Jesus that that confused knot of emotion that we get towards God with, with bitterness and and fear and anger and frustration and just confusion that we get towards God when things happen to us that we don't understand. It's in Jesus that it starts to untangle and can start to make sense and can lead to real healing. Anyways, that's the first lesson. God is always at work. The second that we learn is God uses the weak. Remember Pharaoh's plan? Uh, he gets to the point where he wants to use the midwives of of Israel to um, to destroy the, the the sons of Israel. And so, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them. Why have you done this and let the male children live, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Um, Now, we know that in the place that all this is taking place, in Egypt, the group of the population that is not treated well and that is, in fact, viewed as subhuman, that's Israel. And, and even within that group, Israel, if we're gonna pick the subset of that population that has even less status and less power and less kind of worth in, in the eyes of the, the people who are there, it would be the women, right? Pharaoh views the men as the threat. He says, let the daughters live. And yet, it's through these women who are viewed as as sort of weak and, and inconsequential it's through them and a few others we see in the exodus story moses mother and his sister and pharaoh's daughter even though she does have status but it's through these women that god ultimately sets the stage for a collapse of power in egypt these women who must view as kind of weak and inconsequential, or even worthless. God uses them in incredible ways, and they're incredibly brave. Like they have to know that if they get caught in this, like they could easily be be put to death. And they they come up with the worst lie ever <laughs> to like cover what's going on. There's like you know the, you know they, these Israelite. They're different than the Egyptian women. They give birth before we even get there, and. You know, Pharaoh just believes them. Does he even know what a woman is? Like, ah, uh, like imagine believing that. Like, just my luck. Like, ah, oh, I can't believe that this is the way that they work. They give birth instantly. Just what? What's going on? Um, if he didn't believe them, things would things would go very poorly for them. Uh, Part of this, again, it seems to be like God working in secret here on behalf of the midwives. Like maybe he's obscuring the mind of Pharaoh to believe whatever they say. Um, That's what Exodus says. God deals well with them. He he gives them families. Uh, But He works for them. God uses the weak, This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians in uh, verse 27. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. There he's talking about us Right, he's talking about the people of God, the people who are the followers of Jesus, who are building his kingdom on the earth, that, that we are the, the foolish and we are the weak, and it's through God using these weak and, and sort of inconsequential in the eyes of the world people that God actually displays how mighty he is. What's more impressive, uh, h- hitting a home run with a baseball bat or hitting a home run with a tree branch? Like a, like a little brittle kind of tree branch the tree branch that's what God does when he chooses what's weak in the eyes of the world to accomplish amazing things how does God how does Jesus forgive sin and accomplish eternal redemption for his people by dying on a cross by surrendering his life in an act of love by suffering See, God does not need you to be the biggest, strongest, smartest, have the highest status. He doesn't need you to be the most impressive in the eyes of the world. He just needs you to trust him with with your weakness. See, God, I'm weak, but you're strong, and, and you can do all things. I trust you. God loves to use the weak. Final lesson that we learn here in Exodus 1, the the fear of the Lord will make you strong. Um, Everyone has things that they're afraid of. The the fear of the Lord, when we see that written in the Bible, this is not a fear of like being struck by lightning if you step out of line. This is, uh, the fear of the Lord is being struck by a sense of awe and wonder at the majesty of God to be so in awe of him that he is the primary influence that shapes your life in meaningfully practical and profound ways. It's to feel so small in his presence uh, that he's so unimaginably bigger than you, where you go, this this is what I want my life to be about. You're so captivated by who he is. This is what I want my life to be about. That sense of awe and wonder at the bigness, the majesty of God, that is what makes you strong and bold and courageous. And that's what we see in the midwives, right? The midwives, they must be afraid of Pharaoh. They have good reason to be. He's totally oppressing their whole population. You see, he has no qualms about putting people to death. If, If they're caught in an act of disobedience and rebellion against him, they could be put to death. But what does Exodus tell us? They feared the Lord. More than they fear Pharaoh, they, they feared the Lord. God is bigger to them than Pharaoh is. He's more magnificent. His existence carries more weight to them. Hebrews 13, verse 6 says, uh, so, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear What can man do to me? The fear of the Lord, it makes you strong and bold and courageous because if God is is with you, like, he's the Lord of glory. He's the creator of the universe. He's the author of life. Everything else pales in comparison to to, to him. Like, what could anything else do to you? I'm I'm in his hands. I'm secure in him. He says that he's with me. He says that he loves me. He says that he's prepared an eternity for me. This is why immersing yourself in the glory of God, and and I I mentioned this, I think, maybe like two or three or four weeks ago, I don't remember, but I think I said at, at some point in the past recently that one of the best practices you could cultivate in your own life is to take a little bit of time each day and meditate on the glory of God. Take a little bit of time each day to immerse yourself in thinking about who God is, how good He is, how big and majestic and glorious and powerful and sovereign He is. As you do that, and that becomes your practice, all your other fears in life will grow smaller in comparison. Because you're going to see God is, he's bigger than me. He's bigger than my problems. He's bigger than my problems at work or in my family or with my neighbors. He's, he's bigger than cancer. He's bigger than death. He's bigger than everything in this world. And he's for me. The fear of the Lord will make you strong. It will set you free. It allows you to trust that he is at work even when you don't see exactly why the things are happening, why they're happening. It allows you to to rest in the knowledge that God uses the weak so I don't have to be strong. I don't have to be the strongest. He's the strongest. I'm going to trust his strength. If you're here today and, and you're in a place where you are Uh, exploring Jesus, exploring faith, or even wrestling with doubt, I hope that what you do is you look to Jesus. I hope you see who he is, what his life is like, the work that he accomplishes, the love that he has, the promises that he makes. I hope that in looking at the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the words of Jesus, that um, complicated knot of emotion that you feel towards God because of things that have happened to you, I hope that it starts to untangle and make sense and even lead to healing. As you understand, he loves me so much. This isn't the end. He has a plan. And Jesus himself suffered for me. If you are a Christian, same thing. Keep keep looking to Jesus. Cultivate that practice of meditating on his glory, his majesty, so that you stand in awe and wonder of him and he's bigger to you than anything else in your life and that makes you strong. Let me pray for us.